0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 19. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever."
1: I'm delighted to uh, introduce our guest speaker today, Peter Ong. Uh, Peter has a wealth of experience in ministry. He's worked with university students. Uh, In 2011, he planted a church called King's Cross in Flushing, which still meets today, and currently he is the director of church partnerships with Hope for New York. If you're unfamiliar with Hope for New York, they uh, mobilize financial resources and volunteers to help those that are marginalized, oppressed, and poor uh, in our cities. Uh, Hope for New York also works with a bunch of affiliates. Uh, Peter and I were actually able to work with one of those affiliates called Jobs for Life. Uh, You may have heard of the expression, "Don't uh, don't give a man a fish to eat, but teach them how to fish. And Jobs for Life does that. Uh, so it's not your traditional food pantry, which is also great. But what they do is they try to help uh, people that are sort of marginalized, have gone through a difficult time in life, they try to give them the skills to uh, kill it during a job interview. And so Peter and I, along with some other pastors, were uh, there to help coach uh, some of the men who. Uh, We're having a difficult time getting a job landing on their feet, and so that's one of the affiliates, Jobs for Life and what they do. And so Hope for New York uh, partners with dozens upon dozens of affiliates, and so I'm excited to uh, uh, formally introduce our partnership with them, uh, in addition to giving all of today's offering uh, to them as well. And so as Peter makes his way forward, can we give him a warm, warm welcome? Thank you, Aaron.
2: All right, Exilic. How are we doing today? All right. Uh, okay. Yeah, Asian. Okay. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. Just want to say happy anniversary. I know you just celebrated your fifth year anniversary, and I'll be really honest with you. I've been kind of stalking your church uh, over the years and met Aaron years ago, and I've uh, been really encouraged in God's faithfulness in growing your church, and uh, I was there this morning seeing just a, the more, a, a enormous growth that God has been gracious to your church, but also Aaron's heart and his leadership, that his desires for all of you to grow, and as he shared, we went to Jobs for Life. and you know, my intention of inviting our church partner pastors was to say, you know, we want you to serve because as you're calling your church to serve, you need to also model and experience it as well. And to see Aaron come out on a rainy Uh, Night uh, going up to East Harlem at Bowery Mission. Uh, But uh, I was so thankful for his heart and even during our debrief, just what he shared around how important this work is um, as a pastor, but also as a church. So today's passage, we're landing on a, a passage that often we don't talk about around mercy and justice, but I think it's important because as I was thinking about why we have sometimes a very difficult part of engaging churches or Christians to think through serving the poor and the marginalized is because I think there is actually a hard- this rich young ruler was engaging with. And I love this passage because I think as New Yorkers, anyone who has ever seen, we, we know what it's like. We know what this rich young ruler is like. Um, he's uh, described in three gospels, so he's a composite in many ways of this uh, story. Um, but in all of them, one is that he's called a young man. In another gospel, he's called a ruler. Um, but the emphasis on all three is that he was rich. So he is a rich young ruler, is how he's described. And if for all intents and purposes, when you look at him, he has it together. Morally, he's amazing. He's coming in and saying, hey, as a moral person and following the commandments, he's pretty exceptional. He's also young. Which again, I think in any culture, we, we value youthfulness. But also, he's wealthy. So he kind of comes into this picture with Jesus. And, he's, and he comes in, and he's just this exceptional well. And it reminds me, when I was first dating my wife, uh, you know, we went to Union Square in the summer. And Union Square is really fun during the summer. And as we were walking, I, we're, we're noticing there's a crowd kind of forming. And as, as we're walking towards that crowd, I saw this guy, this Asian guy, and the first thing I was like, man, he's tall. Uh, and then as I got closer, I was like, oh my goodness, he's mad good looking. <laughs> he was wearing a straw hat, he had dimples, and he was smiling, and his voice was just amazing. And then he wasn't wearing a shirt, he was just wearing a vest. And, uh, and he had like, not like a four pack, it was like, a, well, not six pack, sorry, he was like, you know, quadruple pack. And as I got closer, his, he had a perfect tan. He was glistening with sweat, and his eyelashes were very like long. And anyway, I was like, "Wow!" And then I look over to my girlfriend at the time, Jamie, and I look at her, and this is her face. <laughs> like you know, doing the elevator stare. And then I was like, "Excuse me." <laughs> And I was hoping she would be like, oh no, 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 no. Like if it was me, i would be like, no, 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 I was looking at her I was looking at his hat. It was a really interesting hat. But she says this to me. She was like, You were staring too. <laughs> but when I think about this guy, and I think we can relate in New York, there's so many of these kind of really well kept, and I, I appreciate what Pastor Aaron said. Even the Instagram society, if you were to look at all of you guys in Instagram, you have your life together. You eat the best foods. You eat the most amazing sushi. And one time in my church plan, I challenged my church on Instagram. I said, for one week, just post the first picture you have when you wake up in the morning and post it. Post the breakfast that you eat every single morning and post it. It was just you know rhetorical. It wasn't I wasn't I wasn't being serious. I was just making like, yeah, you should do that. And they started doing that, and it was horrifying. <laughs> it was horrifying. I was like I actually don't do it anymore. <laughs> it was just an illustration. But I think when we look at these kind of pictures, we, we have this picture of what is what we call having it together. So today I have a four-point sermon. The first point is the delusion of human achievement. Number two, the diagnosis and the demand of our hearts. Then three, the direction of the gospel. And then finally, the discipleship of the impossible. The delusion of human achievement the diagnosis and demand of our hearts, and then the direct, direction of the gospel, then discipleship, the impossible. So we open up with this passage, and it says, Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would to enter life, keep the commandments. So it's really interesting because uh, in the other Gospels, he's very bold. Uh, he, that's why this opening line of verse 16, and behold, was because this person was coming boldly. And in another Gospel, he was actually kneeling before Jesus. So there's something of an entrance that he has that's very significant. And the question I think a lot of commentators are kind of wrestling with was why did he approach Jesus? Was it to actually show off like, yo, look, I can do all these things? Or was he trying to like kind of figure out what does he need for eternal life? But I think I wanna land on the most important question that he has in this particular passage is what do I lack? What do I lack? And I think if we're honest in this room, that is a haunting question. Every single day of your life, from the minute you wake up, from the minute you go to bed, is this constant verdict of what do I lack? And as he comes to Jesus, he's saying, I've done all these things. So he has a delusion of this human achievement, that if I can achieve all these things, then I'm I'm all right with God. I'm all right with man. But yet he has this question, what do I lack? And there's something extraordinary telling about him. He's haunted that somehow all these different achievements that he had did not give him the peace that he wanted. And I've been reflecting on Kanye these last couple of weeks, and I've been reflecting on Kanye way too much. Everyone's asking, what do you, what do you think about Kanye? Because I I've I've followed Kanye from the very beginning until now, and uh, I have a very uh, uh, difficult relationship with Kanye, Musically, I love him. Like, he is, like, a genius. But personally, I have issues with him. But what I've noticed throughout his career, he always has this haunt, a kind of an echo of, like, wanting Jesus and wanting to know what God is, and then he goes on to the other far end when he calls himself God. But as recently, as you know, he came out with an album called Jesus is King. And it's really fascinating Like, this whole discussion on is his faith sincere, is his faith insincere, should we really, is this a great hallelujah moment, or is this a moment of real caution? And I'm not going to get into that today, but Andrew Park wrote in Gospel Coalition a great article around what led Kanye to God. And he quotes this great scholar, Charles Taylor, that he describes the cross pressures of living in a secular age where we are buffered from transcendence and yet perpetually haunted by it. I'll say that again. We're living in a secular age where we're buffered from transcendence, but yet perpetually haunted by it. And as I read this article, I was like, this is like the rich young ruler. What do I lack? The article continues. Kanye's life has been marked by some of the hardest to penetrate buffers of our secular agendas to offer. He had fame, he had wealth, he had significance. However, entrenched we are in our buffers of either hubris, fame, fortune, the pangs of looking for more always haunt us. As African-American author and critic Tai Coates writes of Kanye, there's nothing original in this tale. There is ample evidence beyond Kanye that humans were not built to withstand the weight of celebrity. Kanye's erratic life and career speaks of his inability to withstand the weight, not only of celebrity, but of self-reliance and self-justification in any form. How buffered souls come to Christ in our secular age. And it gives us this picture. But I think we should also reflect on how the triggers of sorrow and family play a role in shaking up one's buffered existence. And what would it look like for a church to be there for people in these seasons, offering hope in Christ and a community of support? We might reflect on how we preach the burden-releasing of the gospel to a world where people are weighed down and exhausted by various cross-pressures to perform, to be accepted, to be gods of our own making, to define and constantly redefine ourselves in expressive and novel ways. And I think we all undergo this. And that's why this particular rich young ruler is going to Jesus and is asking, what do I lack? And what was troubling and what was kind of the defining moment for him is the definition of what is good. And we all have definitions of what is good. And in his mind, uh, Tim Keller describes it as oftentimes we have this hierarchy of what goodness is. And the top is what we describe as the ultimate good. And whatever context you may have, you know, if, if you if you're, uh, haven't been in church for a long time, if you haven't been in church for a long time, a lot of times we think what is good is a person who constantly prays, who comes to church every Sunday, who knows the Bible really well, and then you trickle down to people who never come to church, not a seeker, but even the social understanding of hierarchies, guy who's made it, Like I was at a a piano recital with my sons. And then when they were introducing kids, you know, my son was like, you know, just introduce them, he likes pasta, da, 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 young kid, 11 years old. And then there's this one kid they were introduced, they're like, oh, this is Jessica. She is her freshman year at Stuyvesant. And the whole audience went, ah. So we have these hierarchies, Stuyvesant, Harvard, Ivy League. Then you trickle down to community college. Or GD. And so, so we have these hierarchies. And he's operating in this level. Like, I have these hierarchies. What is success? And I'm going to present it to Jesus. But the gospel actually doesn't do that. There's not this horizontal line that you just kind of you cross. It's actually a vertical line that co- cuts across all of that. And what separates is, do you lean on the, on the grace of God or you don't. That we're not defined by our goodness or what is good by this hierarchy, but what comes down is the goodness is defined by God who is good. And we're leaning on that. And that's why Christianity is the only religion and its direction is like most religions, like I'm going to present my righteousness to you. Here, let me give you my portfolio. But Christianity is the opposite it's like I will impute or I will give you righteousness. It's this direction. And it's the only religion that you can sin in your obedience. Meaning that if you think that your obedience warrants your justification, that you're right with God because you're obedient, in the gospel you're sinning. But what makes us right is what he's done right, and we lean on that. So this relationship that I think for many of us, and even this rich young girl, is very transactional. I do my part, you do your part. And I yearn for a day, I have two boys, 9 and 11, I yearn for a day that they would do things like they obey me out of love. But right now in their mind, it's, everything's transactional. It's just It's just normal. So in the morning, my younger son comes in. He's always the morning, he's the much more like morning person. He said, look, Daddy, I put on my socks, I put on my pants, I did my homework, you know, and like, hair. And I'm like, oh, that's great. You know what he wants? Can I play Switch? It's very trans. If he ever came into my room and said, Daddy, look, I put on my socks, I put on my pants, I did my homework, because I love you. I'd be like, I'd be freaked out. <laughs> i am like, who kidnapped you? <laughs> who kidnapped my son and replaced me with you? But that's all they know. And that's where the Bible says the law was. It was a tutor. It was to point you to the greater love and grace that was to come to you. It wasn't there so that you could present your righteousness to God. And it often says that you think that you have been defined by. That's why even with this rich young ruler, I'm, I'm questioning, like, did he actually keep those commandments? because Jesus was constantly saying in the gospel's like if it has been said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you if you have looked upon a woman lustfully you have committed adultery in your heart it has been said you shall not murder but if you have hatred in your heart you've committed murder in your heart and i wonder if this is really true but i think that he is pointing to something greater because the law was actually to push us towards our need of Jesus, to a Savior. And that's why working in this model is incredibly tiring. And that's why if that's your constant like, form of how you understand your walk with Jesus or your think of in Christianity, you're going to be tired because you're constantly doing and thinking this is it. And you have no idea what it is to love our neighbor's what it means to engage with the thousands of people in our city who are in need to be seen and heard and fed. And that's why Tim Keller says this, Jesus smashed two of the rich young ruler's assumptions. Christianity is about something, Christianity is about something you can add and something that you can do. Second point, diagnosis and the demand of our hearts. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What did he lack? What was he lacking? And the Gospel of Mark is really interesting, because in this particular passage, in, in, in light of what Jesus said to him, it said that Jesus looked on him and he loved him. And I think that's so significant. That Jesus is having the moment with this rich young ruler, confronting him with his heart, but he loved him. He looked at him with love. Because, in essence, he's saying, and he's seeing something in him, saying, if you love me, no matter what I bring into your life, whatever demands that you think that I have for you, whatever you think that you think that I am demanding of you, you should understand that if I am the creator of heaven, if I'm creative of all things, that I would have wisdom. That you would respond, yes, you are the creator of the universe. So you must know what you're doing. So here, take it all. And he's diagnosing that very special thing in his heart. And that's why there's this moment in the gospel when this woman came to Jesus and he wiped his feet with her hair and he told Simon, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. So this dynamic of the creator of heaven, but knowing that you've been loved, which again, he's haunted with this, what do I still lack? And not being able to see Jesus seeing him and being loved by him. Because in that, you would have known that Jesus had everything. That if you want me to give it away, I'll give it away. And Jesus is dealing with him as if he's an addict. He's thinking that this very thing that you are holding on so tightly is actually killing you. It's a power struggle over your dreams, over what you want. So this is not a, a prescriptive for us to give up all your money, like at the offering, today right after the service don't give everything that's not the point but what he's pointing at what is more important to you than me what is greater to you in the treasure in heaven which is me what is greater so there's an unexpected invitation the problem is not money but it is better than god so oftentimes when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think like, oh, this is the, the last, the first four is like your relationship with God, the other six is for your relationship with people. And everyone says, well, you know what? He failed to see the second part of loving his neighbor, loving people. But I would say it's actually his first thing that's been broken, the first commandment, that you'll have no other gods before you. Or the commandment to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then love your neighbor. He actually broke the first commandment, saying, "I will have no other gods before me." And what's happening here in a diagnosis of his heart is saying, "Money is more important. It is my God." And God is challenging this rich young ruler to forsake all others. Um, for those of you going to who, who's getting engaged or married, you know I've done a lot of weddings, and uh, one of the, my favorite parts and sometimes the least favorite parts are the vows. But every vow that was really kind of evident that cuts across all vows is the idea of what? You're going to forsake all others, right? Will you ever want to marry someone who says, you know what? Um, that part, nah, no. <laughs> that's really hard. And they walk away sorrowful. And in essence, Jesus is inviting him to make a vow. And in the Greek, it's actually not sorrowful. He was grieving he was grieving and that's where i think is the third point of my sermon is that he was grieving because he did not realize the direction of the gospel jesus said to me if you will be perfect go and sell what you possess give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven come follow me in verse 19 prior to that, it says, honor your father and you shall love your neighbor as yourself and remember what i said was what was his definition of goodness was the problem what he defined as goodness was the problem, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking, you know, what is good then? If, if he's saying, you know, good teacher, or he's saying, you know, what do I need to, uh, what, what good deeds that I need to do, then I was thinking, well, well, how does God define good? And one of the most clearly stated ways in which God declares something is good is in Genesis 1, verse 26, and God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the skies, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was what? It was what? Very good. So at the heart of the direction of the gospel is that he failed to see that the mission, the trajectory is to say, actually, the poor are created in God's image, that they're of infinite worth, that when you look upon them, they have incredible value because they're created in the image of God. And somehow he forgot that. And that's why Jesus didn't say, Oh, just give up all your riches, give it to the temple, give it to the priest. He says, give to the poor. Why? Because he's flipping the relationship. Because all our relationships are so transactional. I have friendships because I can benefit from this friendship. But when you have a relationship with the poor, they have, in the worldly view, have nothing to offer you. And Jesus is flipping that. Because he's understanding that's the part of the whole discipleship that is incredibly difficult for us is to actually love someone when they have nothing to offer us. That's why Hope for New York, over the last 20 plus years, have been partnering with churches. Because we have found that churches who actually volunteer and engage, or even Christians who engage, Are so enriched. We just did a survey with Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and there had this thing about a deep correlation that those who serve are much more happy and enriched in their discipleship, in their walk with God. And why is that? Because I think we touch into the heart of God when we do serve. But is that the point? Is the point is like, well, I want I want to hang out with poor people because I want to feel good about being Christian. And you're telling me that no, there's something supernatural that happens. Because first, uh, Colossians 1 tells us that the whole work, like why there's this work of God coming in and being preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. He's sovereign over everything. To what point? So he can re- reconcile us to him and reconcile all things. To every relationship that's been broken. So when there's rich and poor, there's a relationship that's been broken. And we as Christians are called to mend that breach. That's why we have 58 affiliates that represent five boroughs in New York City. We have over 180 programs for you to volunteer at. So, Exilla Church, let me tell you something. By next year, it's gonna be really hard for any of you to say, no, none of them really fit my schedule. It's a mirror to us. What do I lack? And the question is is that God is calling us to do this reconciling work, to bring proximity to those who are poor, those who do Father's Heart, kids Zone. I'm sure you've experienced that, that there's a life that is so different from ours. I remember when I was first in youth ministry, I um, you know, had a ministry with a lot of street kids. So that was my primary ministry with gang kids in Chinatown. And uh, I would kind of mentor them, hang out with them. I was a former gang member. That's part of my testimony. That's another story. But I would take them and uh, one day we're like, we're going to just go and see a shut-in because we did ministry with shut-ins, people, elderly people couldn't get out. So we deliver food for them. So there's one particular uh, instance. We brought the food to them. We went up the stairs and it was this old rickety house. And it was like in the middle of the summer, the kids were complaining. The guys were like, yo, this is too hard. Why are we doing this? We walked into the house and there was a gentleman who greeted us and we gave them food. And the next moment I saw was he was, like, talking to the kids, sharing his testimony of faith. And I looked at his apartment, and it was like he had cardboard on the floor and one little thin mattress. And I thought to myself, this is harsh. But yet he had so much joy, and he was just telling these gang kids. And I would say there was, like, eight of us there. About every one of them was tearing. Because he was just telling his story of how he lost his wife, but yet God sustained him. How none of his kids call him and talk to him, but God has sustained him. How each one of them, he was thanking them for coming because you, each one of you being here, you're showing me the hand of God when I needed to eat because I was hungry and you guys brought me food. And I've been trying to share, my, share the, the gospel with these kids for like six months and they're all looking at me like you're crazy, don't need Jesus. And then he led them in prayer, and they accepted Jesus right at that moment. Some of those kids are amazing kids now. And I think that oftentimes we miss those opportunities when we kind of dismiss the poor. We think that we're actually serving them but actually serving us. And that's so powerful. And it goes to my next point, is this idea that um, the discipleship of the impossible. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, with God, with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. So with man, you'll have all these different motivators to do this kind of work. Uh, when I was in youth ministry, I, I saw the power of guilt. Guilt is one of the most powerful motivators in the world. And I remember kids would come up to me and like, Yo, Pastor Peter, I can't, I can't go to church this Sunday because I'm really tired. And I'm like, I'm glad Jesus didn't say, I'm too tired to go to the cross. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't wake up in the morning, yo, I got, you have too much homework. I don't want to go to the cross today. I said, actually, you know what? Why don't you tell Jesus, imagining him on the cross, and you telling him while he's bleeding for you, suffering, you tell him, Jesus, sorry, I have too much homework to go. No, no, actually, imagine, yeah, you should do that. And then the, all the kids went to church. It was so powerful. <laughs> Guilt is powerful. I remember my son, one day we were on the train, and, uh, you know, uh, one of my m- most beautiful discipleship moments is discipling our kids. You know, and they're, they're so bold sometimes. And one time this person who was homeless was in the train asking for money. My younger son Noah, he's nine years old, he's like, Daddy, Daddy, you got to give him money. And I said, no, I don't, I don't think we should. It's not the wisest we usually have. He's like, you got to give him money. Because the Bible says you have to be open-handed. And I'm like, will you calm down, please? Can you just calm down? And then he yells, like really loud, across the train. Are you Christian? <laughs> then I was like, all right. <laughs> just, all right, just calm down. Because I felt guilty. I felt like I had to model like this to my son. And it's powerful, but with man, it's impossible because you are gonna go to fall into that whole thing again. What do I lack? And if you think achievement is gonna—the delusion of achievement is gonna drive you. What's gonna happen? You're gonna get tired. You're not gonna be motivated when there is no more guilt, because your heart will get calloused to it. That's just natural. So, what's gonna happen for us? How are we gonna disciple? in the impossible. And here's what I think is the most important thing. If you look at Jesus as the rich young ruler, the true rich young ruler, that he had riches beyond anything you could ever imagine, but he went into poverty deeper than anything that you've ever experienced. And that's going to be a spiritual awakening. That has to be prompting by the Holy Spirit. For you to see Jesus as the rich young ruler who had given everything away, that he knew the gaze of his father, that he was loved and he was willing to give everything away. And if you see yourself as the poor person, and that if he gave everything to follow his father, what he's asking of you is very little to follow him. He is not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done. If not, he's done millions and millions and millions of times greater and more than you know. That he was the ultimate or the true rich young ruler. He was 31 or 32 years old when he went into ministry. But I'm going into poverty. If you're thinking about the eye of the needle, it is harder for a rich person to go through the eye of the needle. The eye of the needle for him was he came incarnate into this world in a womb. And he left the world through the eye of the needle of the cross. And that's the impossibility, that if for us to be gripped by that, that has to be movement of God. That when we see, like, I was poor, and I have nothing to offer him. If this is a transactional relationship, that I have nothing to give to Jesus. But yet, he moved towards me. Yet, he seeked mutuality. So when we're doing this kind of work in mercy and justice, we're echoing that. We're declaring to the world, this is what God has done for me. When I was naked, he clothed me in righteousness. When I was thirsty, he gave me the river of life. When I was hungry, he gave me the bread of life, which was his body. When I was in jail, in the prison of my own sins, he came and visited me and freed me. And until that becomes a narrative in your heart, you're always going to be tired. You are always going to seek a mercy and justice. But by the prompting of the Spirit, when we move forth, knowing that's going to grip my heart, and it's from the outpouring of that experience with God we can do this. Let's pray. Lord, I think of the hymn, and I love this hymn, where the lyrics says, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. And this rich young roulette wanted to bring a lot of things in his hands. But he did not realize that he simply needed to cling to the cross. And I pray even for this group here today that maybe they could be convicted of their need, their desperate need. their from the tiredness of achieving over and over again, which have been probably the bulk of what they have been doing for most of their lives. But I pray they may experience the freedom of what you've done for us, that they would know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty we may become rich. And we thank you for the scriptures, and we thank you for this passage. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in the hearts of every single person in this room, including myself, and we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.